Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Screen and Needle podcast, where my compadres and I get to select one film, one album, and a top five list each week to be reviewed and discussed over a pint or two. I hope you'll join us for a drink and some daft chat about pop culture. is will holden and today i am joined by andy malburn how you doing buddy yeah i'm decent cheers mate very good and mark wall how you doing chief yeah sound man thank you good stuff uh this week uh, is andy's picks and for the film andy picked uh music which is directed and written by sia it's come out this year 2021 for the people listening to this in the future, it stars Kate Hudson, Leslie Odom Jr., Maddie Ziegler, and I'll give you the IMDb pitch. Zoo is newly sober when she receives news that she is to become the sole guardian of her half-sister named Music, a young girl on the autism spectrum. The film explores two of Sia's favorite themes, finding your voice and creating family. Members we can contact. Family members. I can hardly take care of myself. Come on, this is your responsibility. Grow up. Hey, music? I'm your sister. All she's got now is you. Calm down, it's okay. Hi there. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't. Music, it's your friend Ebo. <laughs> Tell me, Andy, why did you pick music? Uh, well, Statman Mark came at us with an undisputable fact that we are always super positive on films. And um, I wanted to see if I could find something that even Big Billy didn't like. <laughs> Shatter my positive streak. Yeah, I'd seen, a, I'd seen a couple of reviews and I saw a... I'd read an article a while ago. I think I might have stumbled across it because I was looking up Sia for a different podcast episode. But yeah, Joey that, pleasures. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's been very badly reviewed and um, heavily criticised as well for its kind of depiction of autism. <laughs> uh, I thought it'd be interesting to do something, you know, a bit different. Something not not acclaimed. Absolutely. I think those reviews are quite well earned. Uh, I, I think this film is pretty bad, all in all. There is obviously the big sort of elephant in the room is the, uh, the portrayal of autism by somebody who is not autistic. I think it is at its absolute worst during the sort of surreal song and dance bits where she's sort of interpreting autism in dance and 
it made me quite uncomfortable in those bits. Looking at the film, like, analytically, I think there are other bits that are kind of fine. I think it is shot okay. I think some of the acting is okay. But yeah, I think I think it has a big central issue uh, above all else. There are some problems, I think, with like with the plot. <laughs> I think there are some plot holes. Uh, I think there are some very strange choices in terms of the message it's trying to give. I think it was generally well-meaning, but I think pretty misguided. Yeah, I, I broadly agree with pretty much. All of that. I didn't think it was anywhere near as bad as I expected, though, I have to say. I thought it would be just an absolute travesty, which I didn't think it was. Like you say, I think in terms of the acting and stuff, it was it was it was fine. Like I thought Kate Hudson was pretty passable. Now the autism representation, as you say, is like the main thing. And I've not read into it at all, but I am aware that many have found it offensive. Now, I suppose it should say, maybe it says something really bad about me that I I didn't necessarily find it offensive, but that's because of my lack of knowledge about, you know, that that condition, I suppose. I didn't think it was, as you say, it seemed well-meaning to me. I don't think there was a, you know, any intent to to cause offense or mislead. And I would assume I didn't read into it, but I would assume that there was some kind of research and whatnot put into it. I don't know whether Sia has, you know, some personal connection to it at all. But yeah, I I didn't find it offensive, so to speak. I just think the film in general is just, it's, it's not particularly good. It's not particularly terrible, but it's just a fairly predictable story overall. And yeah, the the flights of fancy sequence for a different reason, really. I just the first couple I was okay with, but they very quickly became very samey, and um, I didn't I didn't find them as as creative as I'd have liked. They didn't really feel like you know big escapist fantasy sequences. They just seemed sort of I don't know there because she does dance and like she just put them in there. Perfunctory, I suppose, is is the better word. Yeah, I think I'm not that bothered about spending ages talking about the the way that autism was sort of depicted in the film. Because for the same point as you, Mark, I don't know enough about autism. I'm not an expert to be saying this is a bad portrayal of it. The, the criticisms that I read are things like like the scenes where they kind of pin her down mm. is is not a way that you should treat somebody who's on the spectrum and, and things like that. It's like, but, but I don't, I, I can understand why people would be offended by it. I, I think that, I think that Sia had a, has a friend um, and the character is supposed to like represent her friend. And I agree with you, Will. I think it's misguided. I don't think it's, I mean, obviously, I the, it's malicious. No, obviously, the intention of the film is to show the positive effect that her sister has on her life. But yeah, I think it completely misses the mark on that. The tonal differences between the music video bits and the film is such a tonal shift, and it doesn't doesn't really work for me at all. 
I, I like a couple of Sia music videos as well, and they were they're definitely shot as music videos. And yeah, I don't feel like they had anything. And the film itself, away from that, is quite a serious drama. And yeah, the juxtaposition between those just didn't work for me. Yeah, they're, they're, at they're all. not waving together at all, are they? No, tonally and narratively, like I think they they don't really tell you anything about the scene that they follow they they do i mean i think they're supposed to in lyrics like i think they're supposed to but they're so like slightly attached to the event that's just happened they don't tell you anything about it in any any meaningful way i don't think i think both the tone and the narrative is sort of lost in those bits i think saying like the acting wasn't bad in it and things like that like nobody stood out for me I think the I think the writing is probably my biggest issue. Like the screenwriting, I think it's really poorly written. I don't like Maddie Ziegler, I think, has had a little bit of criticism. I don't really know what she was supposed to do. Like she's not given anything to work with. The writing for the other two main characters is poor. Like it's just absolutely full of cliches. Like the bit where uh, Ebo's in the church. And he is like talking to his brother and says, like, I used to know what love is, but now I'm not so sure or something like that. Like, it's just cringeworthy lines and it's full of them. It's just, yeah, I I cringed a little bit at it. It's it's so bad writing. What I picked out early on was, uh, as you mentioned, they have this sort of smothering technique where if uh, music... Had a fit, essentially. The fit, yeah. They they sort of pin her to the ground and lie on her until she becomes calm again. And the first time he explains it as crushing her with my love, I found that just Bad. Deep, Bad. deeply, yeah, d- deeply disturbing. Mm. I think Maddie Ziegler perhaps might get the sort of Anakin pass for me. Like uh, from a bit of research that I did do, my understanding is that she'd voiced her concerns on set about sort of playing the character. Now she did obviously go through with it, but I think she was like 17 when this was made. No, I think she was like 14 when this was made. This was filmed, oh, really? this was filmed about four years ago. Sia spent about four years being unhappy with the edit of it. I see. And this is... Uh... <laughs> this was the happy version. Good, good. Yes, so, yeah, I, I, I don't think I want to pin a lot of blame on Maddie Ziegler. As you both said, and the same for me, like I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert on autism and I don't know anybody uh, who is on the autistic spectrum. But I found the, like, particularly the, the first dance scene, I think, got me the most. The, the way that music danced and sort of the face is made when does sort of imitation become a mockery those bits made me feel a bit uncomfortable um i don't i don't think that that's any sort of i mean neither of us are going to be right on this it's entirely interpretation (laughs) but i don't think in those music video bits she is playing an autistic person because that that is how maddie ziegler dances you know it's contemporary dance with very Accentuated like facial expressions and things like that, and accentuated movements, and like she was just dancing in what I would say is her normal 
style from what I've seen. Okay. Like I, 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 I sort of thought that like, yes, the songs, I think they failed at this, but I think the songs meant to represent something within the scenes that had just happened but I don't think they were even necessarily like, I don't think she was playing an autistic person who was dancing within those scenes. If that makes sense. Like, I don't think the sure. facial facial stuff was supposed to represent that at all. Okay. I mean, that's, I don't know Maddie Ziegler in her kind of normal dancing. So that, that's fair enough. I guess that interpretation sort of leads to the idea that in her head, she's not autistic and like, that's a, is that being played off as a as a positive thing? <laughs> I guess so. I, I I actually think that probably the songs. I think the songs were crowbarred in, so I think that it wasn't originally meant to be a musical, and that the songs were crowbarred in afterwards. And so they're actually probably is we're probably giving more thought to it than Sia put into it <laughs> right now. There are some other odd elements of the story that. I feel had a confusing message. Zoo, full name Kazoo, which is which is bad. It's bad, bad names. I mean, as is music as the main character yeah. who permanently yeah. listens to music. It's a late, uh, just so it's just such bad. lazy writing. <laughs> like it's it's bad. But Zoo is a recovering alcoholic, but is also a pills dealer. And Throughout the film, like drug dealing isn't really condemned, I don't think. We've got uh, Ben Schwartz is her like pill dealer and is, you know, sort of surprisingly charismatic as a character. I was going to touch on that before you move on. I love Ben Schwartz. And yeah. I'm glad that I thought he was probably the best thing about this. Admittedly, that's not saying much, but I did kind of enjoy his character. Basically just John Ralphio again. (laughs) But also I've noticed that because he started getting a little bit of popularity, he would literally do anything. (laughs) I don't think he's ever turned down a role. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, derailed you. Carry on. (laughs) The only other thing I was going to say is it leads to a kind of little side story with Ebo who needs some sort of pain medication and at some point can't get it due to bad American healthcare systems. And she ends up dealing him some of these pills. And again, so kind of putting a positive spin on her career as a pill dealer. He's HIV positive, isn't he? Ah, is that there? Oh yeah, that makes sense. There was a bit when I remember her screaming, I don't care about AIDS. And uh, I think I'd missed the earlier plot points of that. I just thought that was a bit of weird writing at the time. And it was kind of weird writing, but... but yeah. I found the stuff with the uh, large Asian boy a bit all over the place as well. Billy Elliot. I literally don't know what that was. Yeah, it was It was an odd thread to have. It was, I don't yeah. know. And I didn't quite understand. Like, I assume he was just supposed to be some kind of angelic figure ultimately but as far as i could tell he basically gets you know killed by his father which is pretty dark (laughs) and then there's a scene of him guiding kate hudson to her sofa after she's you know fallen over and what (laughs) yeah i mean it feels like sia wanted a a death in the film so kind of engineered and engineered a sacrificial lamb but I was always waiting for the B story to connect 
And it does, as you say, in the weirdest way, where up until that point, the sort of musical numbers I at least felt were, were going on in the characters' heads a little bit. Yeah, they're not part of the narrative, are they? No. But in this one, he, the the, the boy who dies, is in their musical number, but they've never met him. Why are they... Why is he there? <laughs> it I seems to blur, blur the lines of its own kind of weird he, rules. He was like kind of her guardian angel throughout wasn't he he was he was always watching her and I assume that she must have seen him or known him to some degree and I think all of those song and dance sequences are supposed to be through um Maddie Ziegler's um yeah mind or whatever sort of lens yeah I don't know whether she's <laughs> like his music a seer fan what she listening to in her headphones all the time she's just listening to Sia well, songs <laughs> and then just I, acts out a video in her head i don't think she's ever listening to music is she they, there's some line when she says like they're just noise cancelling headphones because she can't handle the um Same. which that, which that is one thing i do know that is a definite truth of of you know autism or whatever that does make be overwhelmed by like any kind of sensory experience in terms so, of the the kind of the research done as you were saying like the the validity Sierra's claimed to have done lots of research but initially when she was criticized she went on quite a kind of explicit tirade on social media against the people who uh, were talking back to her which she did sort of later pull back on and apologize for but I think her research is perhaps questionable. Just going back onto like characters, I said that his character was confusing. I think it's kind of weird that the film is supposed to be about music, but isn't about music at all. It's all about her sister. And the only way that anybody has any sort of character or plot is all related to her. I think the worst one is Ebo because, like, his character anyway is just this, like, saintly neighbour. But there's also, there is zero backstory ever given. At one point, I think he says, like, he's from Africa. That, that's it. <laughs> no need to narrow that down. That's uh, that's good enough. You just get no idea of character. You're right. Like, you get this little bit about his his wife left him for his brother and is now marrying his brother. Yeah, but he's so saintly that that's fine. He still wants to sing a song at the wedding. Yeah, absolutely. No, nobody is like that in the world. Like, (laughs) it's just, it's a ridiculous, like, yeah, good Samaritan. Even the Pope had come and shit on a table. Yeah, like Christ alive. And, but all the characters like that, like, I mean, there isn't that many, but, and then th- but, people people also do things that are unexpected, like the landlord who lives like a few doors down is like mm-hmm. the perfect, like he really seems to care for music or at least is like presented at that and, you know, looks out for her. And obviously her and her grandma have lived there for a long period. And, and then as soon as there's a suggestion that she can't pay the rent, it's like, what, you'd be out? I was like, well... <laughs> 
you've only you presented this character yeah. to only have one it's, side to it. Like you can't suddenly flip it and do the other and expect it to make any sort of logical sense as a character decision. Out. You're like, right. It's bad writing. Really, really bad writing. I, th- I honestly think that's the biggest flaw with this. Like it's not. It's not a good film on lots of levels, but you can't make a good film of that script. Like that's just a badly written script. Like there are aspects of this that are not bad. Like some of the way that ways that things are shot, and I have really no opinion on Sia's music in it. It's fine, but I certainly wouldn't say it's big negative for me. Like there's things yeah, that I are agree. okay about it. The acting is mostly fine, but they're just nothing to work with. Like you can't you can't build up a script that bad to be anything good. Yeah, the, the female characters, just that you made the good point before, but I hadn't really considered it, but it sort of presents it to be about music and it's it's really not. And I suppose what they're trying to aim for is like, well, music is what, well, she sorts out her life, basically. She brings the positivity to her as much as she does to her sister. Like you say, the, the you know, the family gathering or whatever, but they don't really give either of them any any agency at all like ultimately she's just reliant on uh on the guy for the majority of the film yeah and, and also they never like that is the outcome like she realizes that her life's better with with music in it and mm-hmm. with Ebo as well and stuff but the the setup for that is pretty much non-existent it's not like you see reasons why music has influenced her life in a positive way no you don't she, really she just has some responsibility and decides to step up to that responsibility like there's no there's no arc there i feel like they sort of hinted at a couple of scenes of them just playing together or whatever but it, it never went into any depth whatsoever i think even her like zoo's alcoholism is sort of used as just a bludgeon tool there's a, a scene early on where she finds a bottle of whiskey and like pours it down the sink, sort of giving the impression she's going to the AA meetings, like, you know, she's she's doing well. And later on in the film, she has a, a crash. And I've kind of got no problem with that. Like, a you know, a relapse is, a, a I think, a, a fine story device in, in this kind of context. But she's got a load of minis under her bed. Like why is she yeah. pour, pouring away one bottle? Again, but it's keeping just bad writing, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. really bad. I'll pour this away to prove a point, but you know I'm not going to pour away those thirty little minis under my bed. Even yeah. that is confusing at the start because, like, the very first time that you see her is when she's in an AA meeting that she's fallen asleep in, and she gets the person running the meeting who wakes her up to sign a court order paper. She's only there because. I mean, she said she was, yeah, she got out of prison, didn't she? Which again, they never, (laughs) they never (laughs) mentioned anything about at all, apart from one throwaway line. But she's, so she's going to AA meetings because she's been told she has to as part of her release. And she's shown as somebody who doesn't really care and is just doing it for the, because she has to. And then as soon as she's presented with alcohol, she pulls it down the drain, which doesn't fit with what they've no. shown so far. <laughs> Very badly written. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, on top of the, say, sort of potentially ableist sort of undertones, it's just also quite poorly made film. And did you watch it to the end credits? I mean, not to the end, not to the end credits, like to the end of the credits. 
Don't no. think so. I mean, if there was anything after, then no. It ends on a kind of weird sort of Saturday night live type sketch as if it's a kind of children's TV show. It seems to have nothing to do with the plot, but just kind of further undermines any potential message that the film's trying to give and ends on this weird sort of childish joke. Very odd. I think the 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 article that I read that was first talking about this film and the reason I was aware of it was talking about like how their relationship is is kind of weird because C is somebody who is quite sort of camera shy and she's often performed with these big wigs that cover like half of her face and and Maddie Ziegler has now become the like face of Sia so she performs live with her and stuff and like all the lights and the normal pop thing where you would have the focus on the singer is on Maddie Ziegler instead and yeah I, I sort of feel a bit sorry for her like almost being She's not an actress. She'd never acted anything before. And she's kind of pushed into this role that she was just always going to get criticised for, like you say, because of the kind of context of the film. I, the, Which I don't think is fair. Uh, I think you said it no, I, I, I think it was fair at all. I think, I think she was, you know, I don't know how else he's supposed to play it. I don't know what more she could have done with it. No. Yeah, but it's a, it's a weird thing, I think, to be like, well, I'm a... I'm a pop star who doesn't like the limelight, so I'm going to use her. I mean, when she started working with her, like an 11-year-old girl, I'm going to use her as the face of me instead. I, I, I yeah, just find the dynamic weird, un- isn't it? uncomfortable. Yeah, like She's not really old enough to decide whether she wants that for herself or not anyway. It's like a pushy you've... parent, but you're not the parent. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that is that is weird. I thought also sort of Sia's cameo was was pretty weird. Mm. Comedy cameo, which I actually thought that the, the basic joke of an idea of a, a celebrity buying prescription drugs illegally to carry them on their private plane to third world countries is actually a, it's not a bad joke. <laughs> I think is is quite funny. But again, just so tonally different from the rest of the film. So out of nowhere, this just weird world-breaking cameo. It's such a tonally weird film, isn't it? The the main plot of it is so focused on this relatively serious drama. And okay, it's badly written, but it, it doesn't deviate from that massively. No. You know, somebody dealing with alcoholism, looking after their autistic sister, befriend somebody who is dealing with HIV and, you know, an immigrant who is struggling for work in America and can't pay for drugs to keep himself alive. Like, all of that is very serious subjects. Uh, The film, the writing just isn't good enough to deal with any of them. And then every time it shifts in tone away from that, it just feels super weird and out of place. So it doesn't matter whether you like those little musical set pieces and stuff, because they're just such a weird tonal shift I, think, that I don't think they're ever going to work I think as soon as you consider that it's not really about music it does become slightly more offensive to me because they're basically because that's such a well-worn story it's so unoriginal you've seen it a million times variations on the theme yeah and the tool they're using in this case is an autistic child to like drive that plot 
I think certainly as the film goes on, that's right. And she becomes a bit of a, just a bit of a prop. Like she's just the the centerpiece for things to revolve around. I I don't think that was intentional, but. No, I don't. But I just, I don't think Sia has a lot to say about people with autism. The opinions that she's driven into this film are about the people who are living around autism or somebody, you know, with autism. Yeah, I think that's very valid. Um, Well, whether whether those opinions are right and wrong is, is a different argument, but. Yeah, I think she runs out of stories to tell for music. Maybe. I think just Sia isn't a good enough story. <laughs> it's just harsh, but I think Sia is just not a good enough story writer to tell any of those stories. It's not like she moved on to tell a story about alcoholism, which I believe Sia has struggled with herself and her dad did. So that's coming from a place of like knowledge and... I think the story about autism is coming from a place of knowledge because one of her friends is heavily autistic, but she just isn't good enough to convey any of that. Like it's, yeah. it's, mm. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think the focus of the story matters. All of those side stories and all of those narratives don't, they're all badly written. Yeah, I don't think it's purposely cruel, but I do think it it misses definitely, the mark. Definitely, definitely not. No, I almost feel sorry for Sia because. I, I do think it is a well-intentioned film that she wants to, like, she wants to tell a story about things that have impacted on her life. Mm-hmm. Like, I read that she gained confidence from directing some of her own music videos, and like, say, I like a couple of her videos as well. Like, she obviously, I, she's gained some confidence and feels like she can do that, and that's great, and. Like maybe she can direct and maybe if she'd directed something that somebody else had written, (laughs) it would have a chance. But, uh, and yeah, I think it's really well intentioned and well-meaning and that she's trying to deal with things that have affected her life and sort of serious subjects and just everything misses the mark. I I almost kind of feel sorry for her in that respect. I think that's fair. I, I agree with you from like a cinematography point of view. It's... I don't remember anything being like outstanding, but I think it was shot like perfectly well. Yeah, that's it. Like it, there isn't anything I can pick out and say this is super, but it also but, yeah. it doesn't stand out as being a particularly poorly directed film. Or no, it's no, it's just it, the basis of the film is so bad that it doesn't matter. Mm. Well, I'm I'm happy to score. Yep, me too. You want he wants to take the first swing of the bat. Go on, Andy. I don't know. I don't know how harsh to be on it. Because if I look at all of the factors of the film, I don't think all of them are bad. And you could give it like a four or five out of 10 for some of them. But I think the writing's a one out of 10. And it just drags everything down so much. And I think the tonal shifts are just really bad. I'm going to give it a two out of 10. I guess one is a complete bimfire and there are some saving graces in it. The, the the acting is generally fine. I think they kind of, nobody stands out because it's really hard to do anything with what they're given. But um, I can't score it more than that. I thought it was, I thought it was poor. Well, I'll say there's plenty of time and say I'm in exactly the same spot. Like, um, I agree. Uh, but even the things that I'm not criticising are at best okay yeah two two out of ten for me as well really going to bring down my big positive average 
Big Billy with a two. <laughs> Big sad Billy. And the previous, yeah, your previous lowest was only a six or something. It's a record. Did it? Found yes. it. You are find something. <laughs> nice work. <laughs> I'm actually going to give it a three. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I was, I was initially coming in with a four. Talking about it has has made it decrease. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot worse. I, th- I do think it's problematic. As soon as you start talking about it, the problems become abundantly obvious. But as I was watching it, I mean, did I enjoy it? Not particularly, but you know, probably not that much off a rayer for me in terms of the actual engagement with what I was watching. Okay. I could have switched. <laughs> I could have switched either of them off and quite happily not known the rest of the story. It's a I think I could have switched this off after three minutes. <laughs> it's a shame that we um, we had the old stat episode and Mark knocking up his scores because I was just about to absolutely lay into you for giving it a better score than Kaufman. But uh, that's been rectified. You've tried to rectify that, so I have rectified. Tried. People, <laughs> people are still going to hear that episode and never hear the not, stat one. Like, not in Andy's Going to cut all of this out, so we'll never know. <laughs> It was a it was an honest and genuine response at the time. <laughs> and to be yeah, you know, free is is hardly like you know, oh yeah, glorious no, triumph, is it? <laughs> oh yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's not just the worst film we've ever reviewed; it's the worst thing we've reviewed. I'm pretty sure. Three, yeah, five, think... six, seven, a huge seven out of thirty. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Smash. <laughs> good. I mean, good choice. Yeah, I will say <laughs> because I really didn't enjoy watching it. I'm not going to be picking something that's really bad again. Done one, that's enough. <laughs> one and out. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll enjoy watching them whilst we're reviewing it. <laughs> right, should we move on to your album? The album you have picked is "Modern Johnny Sings Songs in the Age of Vibe" by Theo Katzman from 2020, the year that never happened. The death of us Love's gonna be The death of us Love's gonna be The death of us Love's gonna be The death of us The death of Tell us about your album. It fits into my list later on because it's a solo album by somebody who is in a band that I like, Wolfpack. I'd heard a couple of tracks from it before. It was on my to-listen-to list because I liked the couple of tracks I'd heard. And for some reason, I'd never really got got around to it. Yeah, I really like Theo Katzman. He plays guitar. He's also the drummer sometimes for... Wolfpack, and he's sometimes a singer as well. And I think he's very good at all of those things. <laughs> I, was kind of, I was kind of looking forward to delving into it a bit. Marco, what are your early thoughts? Really, really struggled to work out where I stand with this one. But I'm afraid I don't like it. Okay. It's... um. Not a million miles away for, for for the same reasons as like the Pearl Charles example. I think ultimately I can appreciate that some of it 
is pretty good. But I just don't like the touchstones. I don't like the genre. Sophisticated pop, R&B. It's just not for me. And as much as I want to embrace like stuff which is out of my wheelhouse, there's a reason it's out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it just we- doesn't... The wheelhouse is closed. closed The wheelhouse is is closed, yeah. I have tried, and look, I'm not like super negative on it. I I think it's um, probably quite a good record, to be honest. There's several songs which have stuck in my head quite a bit. But the difference is not in an enjoyable way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really like this. Why is it stuck in my head? But I feel like both of you will probably enjoy it quite a bit more than me. And that's absolutely fine. I don't don't like it. Yeah, um, that's that's absolutely fair. I think I don't disagree with you in any way. But the things you said are things that I like. Yeah, like that that idea of sophisticated pop. I think that is fundamentally what this album is. It smacks to me of somebody who's sort of studied pop music because it's got all of the hallmarks of any well written pop song. I think it's not just the writing. Everybody on it is just so good. I think he's maximised everything that he could get out of those songs. Like the piano playing throughout it. I think the piano player is is superb. Joe Dart's one of my favourite bassists. He doesn't do anything at all during any part of it. And it's surprisingly subdued, the bass. Oh, his bass tone is just... It is just just delicious, isn't it? Like, and yeah, I think... like. Theo Katzman, I think, does quite a lot of the drumming. I don't know if he does all of it, but he just has such a nice feel as a drummer. I think it's just the best version of that type of thing, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I get if you don't like that, then fair enough. But I don't know. I don't think you could do those songs better. I'm on that side of the coin. I like his voice. I think it's kind of theatrical at times. But I also think he's got like a pretty impressive range in both literal range and tonality range as well. I think he does different things in the record. I think he actually doesn't showcase his range that much. Like, I think his falsetto that he does quite a lot with Fullback is just superb. But again, I can sort of get not liking it. It's hugely stylized. Yeah. Like really breathy. Yeah, stylized falsetto and yeah, really heavy vibrato on some of the lower held notes and stuff. I could sort of get why people wouldn't like it and I really love it. Yeah, I think the risk with stylization is that you do just, it can be really marmitey and completely make or break something. I think the, the instrumentation rarely changes throughout. Like, I don't think there's a huge amount of interest in terms of that, but as you mentioned, in terms of tone, like everything's recorded super nicely, everything you can hear kind of individually. And it's what I'd expect from a kind of Wolfpack alumni. Yeah. I don't disagree with the comment that it's probably those songs are done as well as they possibly can be. But then whoever did that kind of stuff before, I haven't really listened to it because I don't sure. really like it. So I don't really have the, the comparison to draw. I mean, a lot of it reminded me of George Michael, something like that. And I'll be honest, I, I find that more endearing. I, it's quite samey, a lot of the sort of shuffly rhythmic stuff. There's several tracks which have very similar rhythmic ideas and cool. I found it a bit 
trying after a while. I do think he's good with a hook, good with a chorus, but they're not really the sort of melodies that I'm drawn to. I don't want to say they're predictable, but it's just kind of middle of the road. I think that's kind of fair. Like, I think I think his melody writing and his hooks and stuff are always really... Like, I think he's a good melody writer. I think they're always catchy and well-written melodies, but they're never... He doesn't have particularly unusual chord progressions. They are pop melodies and pop chord progressions, and there isn't there isn't anything that jumps out of you that you think this is unusual. It's usually like they're just really nice orchestration around everything and like they're the things that really really grab me see i think there's enough enough of kind of the odd chord that keeps it uh, that little bit more interesting for me like i think a lot of songs the first two chords are like a fifth i see where this is going but it will just kind of throw in the odd jazz chord every now and again just i think there's a lot of jazz chords like i think there's i don't know where you would usually go to a C, like you go to C9, and I think the pianist is a jazz pianist. It's not that I think it's boring in its chords, I just think like the basic progress. I just mean like you're not gonna have a structure, yeah, you're not gonna have a jump in a progression that your ear picks up and things like that's unusual. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like nines and elevens and jazz chords and everything else thrown in that adds interest, yeah, and that kind of works for me in this. In this, I mean, it might make me sound a bit of a hypocrite from previous uh, kind of criticisms because it, it isn't wildly original or it's certainly not pushing the envelope musically. But I think, as Andy said, it's, it's, it's like a, a finely polished gem of pop music is kind of the, the highest quality version of that kind of pop rock, jazz pop sound. Yeah, it's very it's very smooth and well put together. I, I do really like the piano player. I, w- I will agree with that. Some super nice keyboard parts throughout, undoubtedly. Well, I was just going to say, like the whole polished nature of it. I don't think that's a positive for me. Weirdly, <laughs> like, I think it sort of, I don't know, strips some character or something about it that might have engaged me a bit more. Sure. I still okay. think it's full of character. I, I get what you mean. It's that punk aesthetic of uh, being full of character and the, you can allow some imperfections. And I, I 100% get that. There are loads of things that I love that the quality is unarguably less than this, but that just doesn't detract. If anything, it's a plus. But one of the songs that I'd heard before listening to this record as a whole was Like a Woman Scorned. Mm-hmm. And I turn right at the end. I think the song's decent. It's not one yeah. of my favourites, but the the build to the final chorus and the outro-y bit, the, the piano's just superb throughout, but that's a real like highlight for me. The piano build on that is just... Listening little, to that full blast on headphones is just absolutely beasty. And then kind of like mad sort of jazz atonal bit just at the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's... It's very cool. But I, I think the character in the album for me comes a lot in the lyrics. I think I like the lyrics quite a lot in the songs. I like the kind of subject matter as well. One of my favorite songs I think was Best. And just the idea of being kind yeah. of really neurotic about what somebody signed a letter off with and like what it might mean. And uh, I just, I think that's 
quite sort of compelling songwriting when most pop songs are just about love and romances. I think it's quite fun to have one that's just about something a bit odd. It's interesting that you like the lyrics because I quite like them as well, but they're like there's nothing shrouded in mystery at all. They are very plain speaking. It really like skates that line for me, whether like if you're sort of not sold by them, like they're almost cringeworthy in bits. I think, mm-hmm. like, I think so. Because like... there's no flowery artistic lyric writing there at all. No subtlety. Like, no, like I know what the songs are about. They say it. <laughs> it on more than one occasion I kind of thought this could be like a musical like a, a sort of modern musical because it's very narrative driven even if they don't tell a story ongoing each one is a bit of a tale and I thought the last song all's well that ends well sounds like a closer to a musical I could imagine like one person on stage under a spotlight singing that I really like that song just a bizarre little story about her guy kid who's got a horse that <laughs> that runs away and an old man <laughs> who wisely judges everything <laughs> <laughs> nothing happens in the song either like there's no particular reason to like that song unless you actually like, listen to the lyrics of it i like the lyrics if you could be president a sort of snide look at well trump i think quite clearly I think I don't want to be a billionaire is just going to sound hand in hand, like lyric wise with that one. Yeah, I think that's a great one as well. I think it's in, it's in like a woman scorned the line smoking delicious reefer. I was particularly yeah. pleased with a <laughs> hundred years from now as well. I think that's a, a good song subject that basically in a hundred years time, nobody will care. So don't worry. <laughs> I think Feels early to get onto favourite songs, but as we're doing it, the best was up there for sure. I like What Do You Mean When You Said Love. Mm-hmm. But Darling Don't Be Late is probably my favourite track. Yeah. And partly for the lyrics as well. It's, it's a super sweet song. Yeah. Like sweet as in, I don't mean oh, sweet, man. Like it's really, <laughs> uh, it's really cute and yeah, just a, just a really nicely written, written pop song. But like you, I'd heard him on a couple of YouTube videos and I heard you could be president and what do you mean when you said love were the first couple I'd heard. And I have to say it was still like a bit of a warmer for me, this album. Like I've obviously ended up being pretty positive on it all in all. But the first kind of full listen through, it did kind of feel like that fairly uh, vacuous pop record. But I do think uh, the small detail grew on me like I say, his voice and, and getting, like, listening to the lyrics and actually sort of understanding what the what he's saying, even though they can be very twee and, as you say, like, quite on the nose. I also think he's he's got a good turn of phrase occasionally as well. Yeah, it's a hard line to skirt into it. Like, it's all on how you sell it. And, and again, that is completely down to the individual. Yeah, it's only because I thought about it in the context of the podcast, in normal circumstances I would have said I just like the lyrics but actually thinking about it I thought if it was somebody else singing it and it wasn't sold to me I can imagine saying I really hated the lyrics because they were really free and just naff but I was just taken along with them so is it the uh the second song that has the um I don't know if it's like a vocoder or like a really heavily processed guitar 
as the first melody. I think it's the death of us. It is. I think it's a um, talk box. Yeah. Talk box. I quite liked that song originally, actually, The Death of Us. That was like one of the first ones that like grabs me. And that does have the thing Will said where like the third chord it hits is a little bit more interesting and it's again got like a pretty solid chorus or whatever. But I, I don't know, after about four listens, I was kind of a You're bit done. annoyed by it. <laughs> but that, that I, song just has a good riff in it. Built on that one riff, isn't it, really? But he uses that trick on like every other track, I find. I was like, the songs that I liked, I think the run from Hardly Ever Rains to Best would be my highlights. Mm-hmm. Hardly Ever Rains is probably the most basic song on there. It just sounds like a straight acoustic singer-songwriter song. Don't mind it. Don't love it. It was, uh, it was quite pleasant. Lily of Casablanca, I think, is um, a really quite well-written song with an yeah. interesting melody. I think that one. I think and best, I, was, I, yeah, I completely agree with you too. That best is is one of the standouts. I think if I was ranking them from one to twelve, I would put Hardly Ever Rains and Lily of Casablanca probably eleven and twelve. Well, there you go. That that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind them. They just really don't stand out to me. Lily of Casablanca is quite nice. Hardly Ever Rains, I think, is actually a little bit boring. I really like Lily of Casablanca and Hardly Ever Rains. It, yeah, it's not amongst my favourites. I think Fog in the Mirror was my kind of most throwaway. Oh, I like that song. I mean, I say I like that song. It's still falling about eight <laughs> in the list. Yeah, the, the ones you guys primarily mentioned I, did nothing for me. What did you mean? No, thanks. Darling, don't be late 100 years from now. I just I, I struggled to to revisit them. Dang. <laughs> it's funny as well, like, because I would say that the album, I liked it straight away. But I think if I was ranking it off one listen, my score would be considerably lower than it is now. You know, sometimes you're, you're listening to the album because it's a podcast album. And then there's other times where you're listening to other music because it's the music that you want to listen to. And once in a blue moon, you listen to a podcast album and you want to listen to it as your other music listening. By the end of the week, I'd hit that point where I listened to it quite a few times because it was what I wanted to listen to anyway. It did take a little while for it to grow to that point to me. I didn't dislike it early on, but it did It did really grow on me. Whereas it seemed to, seems to be the more you listen to it, the more you fell away from it, Mark. Yeah, unfortunately. I, I think the warning signs were there about... 20 seconds in on the first listen I was like I don't know if this is going to be for me but I did honestly really try I mean I want to like stuff do you know what I mean like I'd far rather spend my time listening to stuff that I liked but yeah it did it did really kind of drop off but then there is that thing I said that you know certain tunes have massively stuck in my head I'm just walking around with them like cycling over and over but yeah, I find that kind of annoying because I don't really like them. But it's uh, I, I had the opposite thing. So, you know, credit to your top five, to be honest, because that like got me listening back to a bunch of stuff that I haven't listened to in years. And I was like, oh, this is, oh God, yeah, this is really great. So it, it was kind of unfair. Like if we didn't be doing a top five that wasn't music related, it, maybe it would have been a different story. Also, stupid point, but actually a very valid one. The last weekend was 
miserable weather-wise, like just depressing weather and whatever. And I think if I was listening to this album, like with the sun shining, beer in hand or whatever, just relaxing, I'd have probably quite enjoyed it. I mean, to be fair, you pretty much enjoy anything in those circumstances, but I'd have definitely enjoyed it a lot more. Whereas, yeah, it just didn't really fit my fit my mood, I guess. I, I guess it passes I, the barbecue test. Yeah, but I don't... Yeah, I think it would. I, I've said it before about things that I actively don't like. It's like the Stereo Lab album. Like, I really didn't like that, but under those circumstances, it seems quite a sunny, poppy album. Sitting out in the park, I'd, I'd really enjoy listening to that with a bit of sunshine on my back, but that's not how the podcast works, is it? Can't pick the best scenario for you to listen to uh, each album. <laughs> yeah. I know I said several times I don't like it, but again, just to... Just to say again, my score will maybe surprise you. I don't know, but I, I, I do appreciate that this is actually quite good. It's it's slightly different to the Pearl Giles situation where I, I I just don't really see the appeal. I don't think it's actually that good at what it's trying to do for see, me personally. I can, I can see the connective um, tissue with Pearl Giles, but I do think this is like I think there are several steps up for me anyway. That, that's but, that's what I'm saying. I will. I'm, like agreeing you're just not getting those no i'm agreeing that it's it's i think it's a superior album i can see why it is good do you know what i mean whereas with the pearl charles i i couldn't really i totally totally get that comparison like they're very different albums stylistically but they neither of them are doing anything particularly new with the genre that they're in well like i said i think this is for me, the best example of this, I think the level of musicianship and the songwriting is superb throughout it. And I think if you're going to do an album that doesn't push the envelope in any way, and it's quite a genre album, then this is the way to do it. And I think Pearl Charles also did that. And it's just not better than anything that came before it. So Mm-hmm. You're not adding anything to that genre at all. You're just doing worse versions of songs that already exist. I, I totally get that comparison. If I'm being very critical, and we don't really bring this up uh, ever, but the album cover of him like playing a guitar like a violin kind of annoys me. Lo- loses a point through the cover and the title. <laughs> we never really comment on the covers, but... Yeah, 100% yeah, agreed. Forced just, quirk. It's nah. just a bit annoying. Yeah, I, I don't like that at all. That that was another warning sign when I looked at the cover. <laughs> I've absolutely no opinion on either. I mean, Normally I don't, thought. but yeah, this one, this one there. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned it. I, I didn't, I I didn't want to be petty, but you went there. So thank you. <laughs> if you ever need petty, I'm your man. <laughs> <laughs> Will's going to turn it around. Two out of ten. Hate yeah. <laughs> Base everything. You, yeah. People say don't judge your book off its cover. Nonsense. <laughs> I got nothing else. Do some scoring. Shall I go first? Do it. So as I said, it was a bit of a warmer, but it ended up warming up quite a lot for me, this album. I think the musicianship's really good. I think the way it's recorded is really good. I think the songs are just interesting enough to fall the kind of right side of pop. And it is a, a top quality example of that type of music. It isn't very original and it isn't trying to do anything particularly special and it does have a bad 
album cover. And for all of those reasons, I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. And now all I'm doing is just listening to Will's comments and then his score at the end and thinking, if I gave those exact comments, I will be scoring lower. <laughs> really, really is uh, really is super, super positive, man, isn't he? Love it. That's who I am. Loving life. So I so I sandwich it as usual. Yeah, go for it, buddy. I'll throw your ten in there and then I'll uh I'll go. Yeah, I mean it's 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 getting the berry. It's getting the berry. Which is an honor in many ways. Could have hit that six, but as you said, that cover straight down to a five. I didn't really take a point off for the cover. No, I know. I, I <laughs> It is bad, though. I didn't really either. It's just a five. I, I, yeah. All right. I mean, you score however you want to score. And I I didn't disagree with any of the points that you said until you gave your score. But it's not particularly original in its songwriting. The songs are still better than Matt Berry's. And the execution is so much better than Matt Berry's. I, I, can't, I can't see how you can give it a five. Uh, it just seems mm. even by the things that you've said, I can't see how that scores a five. I, I thought you were going to get well. I, I think at the, least a six. The, the more the the more the weeks have gone on, the the more I think actually I should have taken a point off Barry. No, Barry was as good as Barry. But I, I can't just like start overscoring everything else in comparison with like because like a six is is something that I'm saying is. Is a good yeah, album which average. I enjoyed and will listen to again. And no, you're just saying I can slightly, tell you slightly better than average. Yeah, yep. I was about to say five. Five's not bad. Like I'm saying, it's average. It's uh, I, you know, I think it's quite good, but I just I don't like the music. So <laughs> <laughs> what a dichotomy! <laughs> I don't really like his voice either. I didn't get that. I know you two liked it. I I don't. Um, well, I'm just going to match your will. Um, I think when I first listened to it, I thought, this is quite decent. I, I thought I was going to come in at probably a seven, maybe a six if it faded a bit on me. Whereas actually it grew on me quite a lot. And there's there's a lot of songs I really like. Maybe about four of them I really like. And none of them are bad. How They Ever Rains, I think, is slightly boring. That, that's it as far as my criticisms go. So big old eight out of ten. Corker, not a bad scorer, but a bit of a split. That's the dream. <laughs> That's what you go for. I'm not doing my overall scoring any favours here. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a reputation to evolve, Marco, just like me. What you're about, was... you've, you've pulled an extra extra point on the film compared to the rest of us. That, well, that that is true. Yeah, oh. I was about 20 behind on the films, so. Yeah, but <laughs> one back. if we're having a new starting point, then you're currently captain positive. Yeah, no, that, that, that is true. But I've just had quite a big deficit on the album front, and I was already behind. But, you know, the, the trick is you need to start picking music, which I like more. It's, it's not complicated. I know <laughs> that's not the goal it. of this exercise. I mean, in but... fairness, uh, you balance it out by picking music that you really like, that me and Will will just hate. Yeah, well, this is true. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that and I, I will continue to fine. do that. <laughs> I think there's only one I've picked, there is. which I liked, and you both didn't. Uh, no. Our best ever album was uh, was a you pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fancy. that was the very first pick I had. I think so. It's been all downhill since. You're extremes. Yeah. 
I want it to fall though. I want that to get taken. I desperately want uh, both the album and the the film to be usurped. You have to really crack on something like really yeah, quite I, incredible. I think I'm going to start bringing out some some big ones soon. I think. Okay, the big In desperation. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> Me too, bristling. God, imagine if it's a guest pick. How upsetting will that be? Guest that would be kind of upsetting. I think that's going to play at the back of my mind now. And if a guest film is scoring particularly well, I'm going to have to sabotage it. Well, <laughs> yeah, but sabotage well, for you not, would be like a, a seven. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you're not. You're not. This film was an absolute mate. piece of shit. Six out of ten. Okay, so finally, we move on to your top five list, and tell us what your list is. Forgotten exactly how I phrase this. Top five. Side projects or solo albums by people in famous bands. Well, if nobody has any objection, I'll put myself forward. Uh, my number five is Diamond Head by Phil Manzanera, the guitarist most famously, I think, for Roxy Music. I must admit, I've not listened to Diamond Head actually for quite a while, but there was a period of time when I absolutely smashed that album. Me and you were living together at that point, Mark, and I think we enjoyed that album for a good, like, long summer. And it's a very 60s, 70s kind of psychedelic rock album. Yeah, it's a really fun album for somebody who, I guess, in Roxy Music didn't take that leading a role with Brian Ferry being around. Yeah. It's a great record, a good pick. I'm glad you put it on there. He has uh, he has a number of guests on it. The first song, Frontera, I think it's called, where mm-hmm. it's it's a great song. But that's uh, Robert Wyatt from Soft oh, right. Machine singing that's in chilling. Spanish. I like Robert Wyatt. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it's cool. Learned new things about Diamond Head. Maybe it should go up the list, but not today. <laughs> it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna have to live at five. I've never listened to it, but uh, like a bit of music, so. I will check it out. Okay. Uh, shall I go? Go for it. All right. So my number five is a wildly uneven record where I would say, I think there's nine songs on it and probably only four of them have particularly like, but I really like the ones I do like, which is uh, David Allen and You Terp. The album's called Good Morning. It's not available on Spotify. However, it is on Bandcamp. But David Allen crazy Australian hippie guy who was the frontman of Gong. He kind of did a okay, space, yeah. quirky space rock where sure. they're, they're, they're separated. I mean, they're a great musical band, but they kind of stand apart due to David Allen, mm-hmm. who I think is one of the most unique voices in music full stop. I think he's got a weird voice that shouldn't be like fronting a band and but because of that, it really works. And he's he's one of the most charming, likable presences you could come across. And this carries across to his solo arm, which is a bit more kind of introspective and singer-songwritery. But he teamed up with these, I think they're Spanish U-Turf or something like that. So you get all this super cool instrumentation. And uh, yeah, like the songs are still pretty progressive as well, but in a really nice kind of acoustic way. I just... All I would say is if you've got any interest at all, go and listen to the first two songs on the album. And uh, Nice. If you don't like those, you definitely won't like the rest. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, 
what Andy said, shining a light on kind of unknown territory. I don't think anyone would have listened to this. No, I mean, I'd uh, never heard of it. And uh, I can't say I'm a huge fan of Gong, but I'm, you know, sort of familiar, familiar with them. Yeah, it's, it is different to Gong. They're, They're very different entities. Go on, Andy. I found this list slightly harder than I thought I would when I picked it. Because I had lots of albums in my head, but there's just there was just such a crossover of people, it was ridiculous. I'll get onto that later. So my pick for number five is not a fantastic album, but I've put it in there one for a bit of variety of people and two for sort of nostalgia, because I did really like it when it came out. I listened to it again before I put it in. Uh, I do think it holds up. And it's um Broken Bells. Right, Broken Bells which is the lead singer from The Shins, James Mercer, and yeah. uh, Danger Mouse. And it's a real run-of-the-mill uh, indie rock album, essentially, like indie pop album. I just think James Mercer writes really nice melodies. I like The Shins. There's nothing to them. They're just a real simple indie band. But yeah, I think his melody writing's really good. There's actually, considering it's Danger Mouse, there's not a huge amount of influences that I would expect from him. Like it's one of the rare ones on my list where I think like this easily could have been a Shins album. Uh, yeah, I just think it really well written songs, super nice melodies, and yeah, I like it quite a lot. The lead single off its uh, top as well that is on my big playlist, which is called "The High Road." I have heard of this, but I haven't listened to it in. I don't know how long, a long time. And uh, yeah, I can't say it stuck with me, but I think I'm with you like the Shins and is it James Mercer. <laughs> I forgot his yeah, name immediately. Yeah. yeah. As you say, I think as far as that kind of indie goes, yeah, it's not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not pushing the envelope. Like I say, he's done a side project, which is not remarkably different from anything that he did with the Shins, but it's just a really nice album. And uh if it's not a genre that's up your street, I would not necessarily recommend checking it out because it is not anything unusual. But uh, I like a bit of well-written indie pop and I think it's a really good example of it. Very cool. Okay, should I do my number four? Yes, please. Uh, my number four is The Grand Pecking Order by Oysterhead, which is a kind of one-album side project uh, fronted by Les Claypool, Kind of most notable for Primus. I can't put like hand on heart and say I'm a really big fan of Les Claypool. He's a bassist, which leans into my my likings. And I remember they had as a Primus track on the first Tony Hawk's game. Johnny was a race car driver that was really good. <laughs> and there was a Primus song featured in a South Park episode about Guitar Hero that was pretty good. But this album is not like a Primus album at all. Like it's not very metal influenced. It's weird. It's sort of a hippie, hippie electro kind of industrial chant album, I guess. It's it's, it's really, really. Excellent description. It's really bizarre and the songs are really strange, but they kind of just work in a weird way that they are melodic enough to be a bit memorable and have a hook but they do just sound like mad people chanting at the moon sounds yeah, pretty fun it's yeah. a it's a, it's a weird one but a good one cool name as well 
Yeah, which I've already forgotten, but I remember thinking it sounded cool. (laughs) The Grand Pecking Order or Oyster Head. Both of those, yeah. I like those. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Number four for me is uh, The Spinning Top by Graham Coxon of Blur. Now, there's actually a number of Graham Coxon albums which I quite enjoy. I don't think he's ever really produced a masterpiece. But kind of when we were saying, I was saying at least before, about the, the glossy nature of Theo Katzman and how that rough and ready stuff can be a bit more appealing, he's got it in spades. Like, he's not the greatest singer in the world by any stretch of the imagination. And a lot of the time, he doesn't seem too bothered about production quality. But he is a great guitar player. And this album... The only real criticism I have is it's far too long. I think it's about 70 minutes or something and 16 songs or something. Some of them are really long, but there's so much stuff I really like and I revisited it over the last week. And I just, yeah, it's probably half of the album I just think is is top notch. There's, there's experimentation in there as well with the instrumentation. Like I think the song in the, in the morning, the third song in there is like a load of awesome Burt Jantz guitar folk guitar but then all backed by this indian kind of instrumentation and there's loads of wild chordal turns and stuff within it it's, and yeah this, this is just the guy from blur i just think for some reason i've just always sort of had an affinity for him an affection or whatever i, d- I don't know if i've listened to that album but i have listened to some great and coxon before i considered having a bit of a listen to try and work through what I'd listened to and liked before. But mm-hmm. like, Blur is just a treasure trove. I mean, David Albarn's got about 45 different solo projects and albums. And all of he does. Done. I just felt like I was going down the same rabbit hole, so I didn't even bother. No, fair enough. But uh, but yeah, good pick. I do like uh, some Graham Cox and solo stuff. Is that me, number four? That's you, number four, bud. It is. This is another rabbit hole, actually. It's Tom York project. Uh, I've gone for Atoms for Peace, which I think was basically a band that was put together to play his first solo album, Erasure. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, as I understand it, he put it together because he just realised that he couldn't play it live with acoustic instruments, and so he wanted to put a band together to kind of play it live differently, and it included... Well, I think he went to Nigel Godfrick, who has produced loads of Radiohead albums, and um, yeah, Flea from Chili Peppers is the bassist on it, but they ended up... They've released one album, and it's... Like, it does kind of have the feel, sort of, of solo tom york stuff but it's also it's pretty hard to categorize i mean a lot of it just sounds like jam sessions where they get hooked on some kind of weird electronic loop and uh, big press record yeah like (laughs) like it's just it's a hypnotic album it's not an album like full of hooks and stuff it's one to really get lost within a little electronic groove or i think tom york's voice is so unique that it's hard for everything not to sound a bit like even Radiohead sounds a bit like a Tommy York solo project. The fact, <laughs> is, late, the fact is, later later Radiohead sounds more like Tom York solo projects anyway. Like it's sort of the direction a little bit that they moved in. Yeah. Um, but then there's loads of like African percussion things on this album as well. It's got, it doesn't always have trip hop drums. It's cool without being like particularly catchy or memorable there was a massive like fella cootie 
thing. I remember them saying that they were just listening to loads of that and just, like you say, jamming. And it's a bizarre combination, Flea and Tom York. Yeah. I only ever listened to it once or twice. It didn't grab me, to be honest. But I might try it again because still have a lot of time for Radiohead. And I don't mind the Eraser. I don't think it's great, but it's it's got it's got some okay stuff on there for sure. I think with a full band, it's a more interesting album. And I can get, yeah. I can 100% get why it wouldn't work for some people, but I, I do think it's, it is definitely interesting. Yeah, I might give it another go. Okay. My number three is Chips from the Chocolate Fireball by the Dukes of Stratosphere, a band which is essentially just XTC. And they released a 60s leaning, again, I feel like I throw out psychedelic rock a lot, but it's what it is. I can't say it's primo XTC. It doesn't reach the heady heights of as good as XTC can get, but it's still a pretty good album, particularly Vanishing Girl. Sounds like it's yeah, ripped Moulding straight from is, the... As usual, Colin Moulding bringing, oh, bringing the, the tunes. Yeah. But I'm sure Vanishing Girl is him. He's got a couple of others on there which are cracking. Yeah, I love that album. It's, I, one, yeah. it, it's one of the few ones that I thought I could put this in the list and then thought, because I'm sure that you told me to listen to it, Will, and I thought there's no point putting it on there because I'm just 100% sure Will's going to pick it. I, I love XTC, so they need to be represented. I think it'll be top five XTC for me, quite quite comfortably. Mm. I'd have to give that. That's a different top five. That'd be <laughs> well, a, ve- is, yeah. a very niche one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if anybody knows anything about XTC, it's kind of more of that, but with a very 60s-leaning sound. Well, I think it was an intentional pastiche of, uh, yeah. of 60s music, and they oh. absolutely nail it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really good, yeah. as is everything that they do. Yep, good pick. You're number three, bud. Uh, I've probably mentioned this several times, but the only metal album I like, really, Phantomus, the director's cut, because I'm not big on metal, but I do absolutely love me uh, a film score and a film soundtrack, and this is just all old film themes done with a metal leaning but not just in an obnoxious like let's just whack in a load of distorted <laughs> guitars and screaming which there is a fair amount of that but it's it's quite classily done i think the covers are really good i mean i can't remember if i mentioned them in the cover version discussion but you can take your pick off of this album but yeah you're at, you're at a significant advantage when you're drawing from like jerry goldsmith angelo badalamenti nino rota john barry and it could be sacrilegious. I mean, in theory, I should hate it because I love all the originals, but I actually think they do it really well. And obviously it's Mike Patton and it's phenomenal vocal performances across the board. I think yeah. it really can be done well. Like, I don't think that's a, a big problem. Like sometimes covers are just rad. And I think sometimes taking things on a very different genre or very different kind of style in, yeah, can really like breathe life into something again. They still absolutely capture the atmosphere of the originals. Which is why it works. It's not just, you know, let's just do metal covers. They, it feels done from a place of love for the originals. I mean, yeah. two, two yeah. things. Like, one, Patton's vocals are just superb, so of course they lift it above. And then, two, there's no point doing a cover that's identical to the original, particularly if it's a, a well-loved song or soundtrack Agreed, or yeah. whatever. So I have no problem with somebody putting their own slant on it. I'm still allowed to hate it, but I'd kind of rather you came in with that <laughs> as your as your premise. Yeah. 
Otherwise, you, have you listened to that album then? Do you, do you not like it? No, no, I haven't listened to it. <laughs> it's probably well, not as metal as you might initially consider it. It's the metal album to like if you don't like metal, which I don't. That's fair. Cool. That's me, isn't it? Is it me? Your number three. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, it's a bit of an apologist pick, this, because I'm going to have to defend both. But So I've gone for The Last Shadow Puppets. I'm going to go for Everything You Come to Expect. Although they've got two albums, and I like both of them. It's Alex Turner from The Arctic Monkeys and Miles Kane from whatever Miles Kane does the rest of the time. Um, <laughs> the Arctic Monkeys are one of those bands that I like without really liking. I always listen to their new albums, and there always ends up being like two songs that I quite like, and then the rest of it I'm not fussed about. I just really like their sort of ethos. They made a super popular indie dance album, one of the biggest debut albums of all time, and then just went like, oh, we don't want to do this anymore, so we're just going to do something different. And they've kind of done that their whole career, and I respect that. I really like Alex Turner's lyrics. And The Last Shadow Puppets, I like their first album as well. That's very... It's big, like, orchestral stuff, but the orchestra's never doing anything particularly interesting. <laughs> Uh, it's just building a big orchestral sound around a indie rock song a lot of the time. And the the second album is the same. I think maybe slightly less of that, just pop strings. and I mean, they are real strings, but, you know, pop strings yeah. and horns and everything else. But um, I just think some of the songwriting on it's really good. Sweet Dreams, I think, is the best ballad that Alex Turner's ever written. Again, lyrics are just superb. Nothing happens in the song as well. It's just one rhythm that goes throughout the song it is carried by its lyrics aviation's got a super cool riff uh like cactus really makes me laugh because it's out it's turner really badly singing in french um <laughs> yeah it's just it's an album full of charm for me well i agree with you i've had some respect for alex turner for and i guess the rest of, of arctic monkeys for not just doing the same thing over and over again i've not really been a fan of it but I do remember a, a, probably a single off their first album for Last of the Shadow Puppets being fairly popular. And I thought that was all right when it was out. I mean, this had been quite a few years ago. Yeah, the album I'm talking about from 2016 and their first album, Age of the Understatement, uh, is 2008. I could have picked either album. I think they both have loads of cool tracks on them. Yeah, I wanted to include it for the sake of saying something different, even though I'm actually mildly embarrassed to bring it up. <laughs> Oh, fair play. Good bravery. Check it out, Mark. You'll hate it. <laughs> I think I did check it out many years ago. I can't believe 2008. That's insane. I don't know. I, I kind of like the idea as respect to him. I remember at the time hearing it was sort of going after a more Scott Walkery vibe, which absolute respect for that. My issue with Arctic Monkeys is firstly, don't like many of their songs that I've heard. There's, there's a couple I think are pretty good. But mainly, I'm not huge on his um, voice. But I know he varies that up, and I know he sings differently at times in The Last Shadow Puppets and indeed on the last couple of Arctic Monkeys records. So I might go I might go and give it a go. I think a lot of the bands that were contemporaries of the Arctic Monkeys kind of faded away just doing the same thing over and over again. And while I don't think the Arctic Monkeys ever recaptured the kind of popularity they had the first time round, at least they're doing it on their own terms, it feels like. And I, uh... mm-hmm. I think they did. I think some of their later albums are 
I think that, yeah, maybe it's just me that's out completely out of touch. Like I remember their second album, things like was it Brian Storm? That was a a decent hit, I think. I don't think their biggest songs are off their first album anymore because songs have surpassed that since. And and like I'm not trying to defend it. I don't love all of them, but there is a couple on every record that I think are genuinely good. I do like a band that just does what they want to do. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so my number two is directly connected to your album pick, and was the first thing that came into my my head uh, when you when you offered this this list. And uh, the album is Tailwinds by the Fearless Flyers, which is uh, another offshoot from Wolfpack, but is their like speed funk <laughs> wing of Wolfpack. And I think it's where Joe Dart is at his most extreme a lot of the time. And they're just super upbeat, pretty intricate and quite short (laughs) funk songs. And it's a ton of fun. Agreed. Like (laughs) Kenny and the Jets is such a tune. There's like a cover of a Bullpack song in there, like the Speedwalker. They do the standard thing of naming songs after the people who are playing on them. Yeah. All the the saxophone players are playing uh, Fearless Flyers are. Superb. I almost I almost picked a solo album by one of them. I won't say who because I might pick it later. Yeah, that ace on board. Yeah. I think that was probably the first album I listened through. And I think Kenny and the Jets is probably the swinger from like album to album. I think that cover is the one that kind of nails this one down. So good, isn't it? So good. I think if I got it right, Mark, you were saying earlier when you listened to some Wolfpack, you preferred the instrumental songs. Yeah, well, I think I might have listened to this album. Right. I, I sent you a load of tracks once and I yeah, put, I put a Fearless Flyers, like a couple of tracks I on think there. I remember thinking, maybe preferring the, the Fearless Flyers. They I, are I, just I remember that. sort of walking back like quite drunk from a pub once and listening to it and thinking... It's a good is... drunk listen. Yeah, it was. Yeah, really get your um, booty shaking. I can't pick which I prefer. They're both, they're both superb. I think unfortunately, because yeah. I was drunk, I sort of forgot about it and didn't particularly like going back. But uh, yeah, no, I will do, because I, I think I do remember liking it, actually. Yeah, it's sweet. Nate Smith's a drummer on it. He's absolutely... Everyone's just superb. Cool. Shall I go? Yeah, go for it, Chief. Okay, uh, so number two, going for a David Byrne album, Grown Backwards. I'm not the uh, hugest Talking Heads fan, frankly. Like, I, I quite like them. I know Louis, our guest next week, obviously loves them, but I think they're more of a rhythmically led band for the most part. And his solo stuff is quite a bit more singer-songwritery, melodic, but it still retains a load of the rhythmic stuff as well. And he also goes all over the place in terms of world music. This album is just incredibly warm, nice to listen to, really, really solid songs, but they're not boring or bland. I guess this would be an example of sophisticated pop that I want to listen to or I'm more drawn to. It's still got a lot of variety in it. It's even got an opera song with bloody, what's his name? Rufus Wainwright. Oh, nice. Which um, always used to strike me when I listened to it many years ago as a weak point. And this time I kind of enjoyed it. It just goes to show I'm getting older, I guess. But <laughs> And I'm not going to lie, like as a rule, I really don't like Rufus Wainwright and I'm not sure why, but something about him just irritates me about his voice. Yeah, I I'm kind of with you. He's he's just literally just harmonising Burn in this opera tune. It, it kind of works. It, he's, he's found his place. Yeah. But I'd I'd be very very surprised if anyone listened to it and was like, "Well, this is this is bad." 
there's so many just really well-written songs and there are some interesting twists and turns not that many it's not like progressive really but you know it will go into instrumental sections in the second half of songs and all the arrangement is super classy loads of chamber strings and like horns and world instrumentation interesting percussion yeah it's great i mean I think it's yeah you're selling it thing by him to be honest so yeah that, that was one of the ones that i rediscovered this week and it did sort of take away from from the catsman stuff but yeah it just it just shows how much i was enjoying it i suppose fair as play as, as long as i'm being inspiring i don't mind in which direction yeah no i know <laughs> <laughs> that's all i hope for just to be an inspiring individual no, I, I really enjoyed this list. I think this is one of the one of the better ones we've we've had, to be honest, for me. So my number two is uh, "Give Up" by Postal Service. It's another throwback pick for me, really, because I really like this album um, in two thousand and three. But I listened to it again in picking this list, and I know it had loads of success. I should say, actually, it's a Project from uh, Death Cab for Cutie lead singer Ben Gibbons and other people that I don't know. But it's very similar to the kind of indie rock that he does, except it has lots of electronic elements, electronic drums and that sort of thing. But the songwriting, I'd say, is similar. I really like his songwriting. And yeah, I know like Such Great Heights was a massive hit off here and The District Sleeps Alone tonight. But yeah, it is basis. Like you could play any of those songs acoustically, and I think they would hold up because stripping back to nothing, and they're just really well written pop songs. It was on my long list, and I'm a, a big fan of Postal Service and of Death Cab for Cutie. I think that you introduced me to them, and I've always liked the fact that the reason they're called the Postal Service is that they kind of mailed ideas back and forward to each other. I just found yeah. that quite charming. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I, I was surprised how well it held up as an album. I thought it would be one that I've not listened to for 10 years and I would listen to and think, why do I like that? But actually, I stand by my decision 15 years ago. Will, I think it's your number one. The big number one. I'm kind of glad that nobody else picked this one, I think particularly Mark. But you already touched on a Mike Patton side project and I've picked another one. And my number one album is California by Mr. Bungle, which I'm putting forward as the metal album to listen to if you don't like metal. Well, I don't like that metal, and I do like that album. It was, <laughs> uh, it was in my honorables. It's a, it's yeah. a great album. It is a great album. Is it a side project, though? Because Mr. Bungle were his first band. I, I seem to remember last week the, the premise being set out that as long as they were more famous for something else, it didn't matter whether it came earlier or later as a project. So I yeah. think he's best known for Faith No More. For Faith I No More. I mean, yeah. in fairness as well, apart from Mark often completely misunderstanding the premise of the list, anything is uh, is acceptable <laughs> usually. <laughs> yeah, I think I've justified that. I think I'm happy I've, with it. I'm fine with it. But it's just, it's one of the most unique albums I've ever had the pleasure to listen to. The songs are both incredibly memorable and super weird. I don't know how you describe something which is so individual. <laughs> There's nothing really to compare it to. Mike Patton is the man of like a million voices and has a million side projects. But to date, Mr. Bungle is my favorite Mike Patton iteration. Yeah. They've uh, got a new album out as well, haven't they? 
I have is not very good. Yeah, not, <laughs> uh, <annoying>. oh. <laughs> not listen to it, yeah. Is it the one it's the one with like pink cigarette and yeah. clarity on, right? Reverta girl. Air condition my, uh, nightmare. Uh, that, uh, it's not a metal album, I don't, I don't think it's a metal album at all. I was just being facetious. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't I, qualify as the one metal album that I like. like it's, it's not a metal album and it's great. Uh, but yeah, California is great. Okay. My number one is a band I mentioned in Phil Dixon's episode, Frank Black and the Catholics. The album is Dog in the Sand, which is just one of my favourite albums, full stop. I think it's absolutely terrific. Obviously, could have picked Teenager of the Year, which is, again, one of my favourite albums of all time. But I feel like Frank Black still gets some recognition Whereas Frank Black and the Catholics, no one gives a shit. No one cares. No one's <laughs> listened to it. And they probably never will. And, you know, fuck them. <laughs> okay. Um, I, there's there's particular reasons for this one because he goes off in, in a completely kind of new stylistic direction. It's got more of a country vibe. And as someone who's not huge on country music, he sort of provided a, a route into that. And there's loads of pedal steel guitars and... It's mainly an acoustic album. And I, I suppose a criticism could be levelled, but it's kind of less unique than a lot of his earlier stuff, which is very true, but it still has a load of the Frank Black quirk to it. I think there's some of his nicest lyrics in general. There's some really clever stuff. It's all live to two track, like the you know, it's just recorded live, so it's just one take vocals and all of this, and his voice is terrific. For a guy who's basically just known for screaming, he can sing pretty damn well. It's an album that absolutely holds up. Anytime I put it on, I think it's great. No, I think it's a good choice. And I definitely considered the like pantheon of Frank Black from Frank Black, Black Francis, et al. And they all made my long list, but I thought you might pick one of them and I didn't know which one. So I just sort of stayed clear of all of them. Like Frank Black is probably my favorite kind of version Standing aside from the Pixies, Black Francis probably my least with the Catholics sat in the middle. I'd probably go with that, to be honest. But again, I just I just wanted to shine a light on the Catholics rather than... Absolutely. I mean, if, if anyone doesn't know that Teenage of the Year is incredible, then... Fuck that too, huh? Going, oh, yeah. Go and correct <laughs> it. Like. Andy, it's on to your number one, big bud. <laughs> uh, yeah, good stuff. Right, my number one is The Good, The Bad and The Queen by The Good, The Bad and The Queen. I ended up with just loads of people from the same group or Blur have done tons and Damon Albarn's done tons. And yeah, it's just a really good album. I love loads of songs on it. History song's great. Kingdom of Doom's great. The, the outro to the album, the song, <laughs> The Good, The Bad and The Queen, off the album, The Good, The Bad and The Queen by The Good, The Bad and The Queen. The outro is just epic. It's a seven-minute track that is basically a two-minute song and a five-minute build outro. I considered Gorilla stuff, and there's loads of Damon Albarn things that I like. Yeah, Rocket Juice and the Moon is really good as well, which also has Flea as a bassist on it, weirdly. It's around. But, um, but yeah, this album is just better than him. I genuinely think it's a great album. I think it's up there with anything that he's done with I think The Good, The Bad and The Queen is my probably my favourite Damon Albarn vessel. Because I've got to say, I'm, I don't I don't like the gorillas. 
and massively disagree on that, but fine. Uh, and I wasn't the hugest fan of Blur growing up. Like, there's plenty of bits of Blur that I like, but I've got no kind of album or period of Blur that I'm really cling to. And I think the Good, the Bad, and the Queen, yeah, is kind of my my favorite version of what he does. Damon Albarn, since he started doing solo stuff, will do anything. He has a Japanese opera and about 15 different side projects and they're all musically massively different and they don't all work for me but a lot of them do i like the good the bad and the queen a lot as well but their second record was yeah, very rubbish. very disappointing <laughs> yeah massively <laughs> <laughs> yeah agreed mm, no I, I agree i like that album they're playing great number one it was an inspired list i think andy for one that you just sort of pulled out your ass but <laughs> it turned out real good results. Yeah, no, that, that was that was quality. So we'll move to next week. And next week we are going to have a guest again. That guest is called Louis Smith. And his picks are for the film The Vast of Night, for the album Wishville by Catherine Wheel. And his top five is top five stylistic changes, which is open for a great deal of interpretation. Well, that's all from us at Screen and Needle. So join us again next week. We'll talk about another film, another album, and another top five list. Goodbye. Goodbye.